Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hello, everybody. Mitch Michaels here. And before we get to this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside and with on-court interviewer and journalist Nick McCarville recapping the 2022 U.S. Open, I want to spend some time talking about the somber news that Roger Federer will retire after next week's Labor Cup in London. The accolades speak for themselves. He won 20 major titles, 8 Wimbledons, 103 tournament titles, and spent 237 straight weeks at number one. But to describe Roger Federer's greatness goes so far beyond stats you have to tell the full picture about what he meant to the sport, what he meant to a generation of fans and athletes alike. You know, in over 1,500 matches, he never retired in the middle of it. And I think that speaks to just his toughness and what he meant and what he brought to the sport. Off the court, he handled his losing and winning the exact same with class and humility, was gracious in defeat, humble in victory. And there has never been a better ambassador for any sport, tennis especially, than what Roger Federer meant. The Roger Federer Foundation is changing lives in Switzerland and Africa, and it goes without saying that very few athletes, if anyone, has ever used their platform to bring a greater change to society and to the world. Selfishly, I'll miss Roger Federer. I'm in that age group where he was one of my tennis idols. The reason that i probably doing this right now is because of how brilliant and how beautiful Roger Federer played. But he taught us so much more about how to handle competitive losses, how to roll with the punches, and how to deal with what life gives you, good and bad. I'll miss watching him play. I'll miss covering him. I'll miss talking about him. Uh, but more so, I'll just miss that fire and that competitive spirit. So many memories. What a thrilling ride. We'll have so much more to talk about it in the week, next week especially, but in the weeks and months and years to come. Uh, his place in the game goes unmatched, unquestioned. And as a fan, as a professional in tennis, as someone that just appreciates greatness, I speak for a lot of people when I say, we'll miss Roger Federer. There will never be anyone like him. And... uh all the best in the world to Roger, Mirka, the family, the kids, and everybody in his circle. So, Roger Federer, sad to see you go. It was a privilege and an honor to be along for the ride. And uh, as I mentioned, we'll have so much more to talk about in the weeks, months, years to come. Goodbye, RF. Now, Tennis Channel Inside In starts with Nick McCarville recapping the 2022 U.S. Open. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In here on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios recapping a wild end to the major season, the U.S. Open in the books. Joined now by a uh, special guest, first time on the show. He's an on-air host and tennis commentator, covered Wimbledon, U.S. Opens, to name a few. Uh, he's been in the booth. He's been an on-court interviewer. He's written and produced about tennis and other sports, including the Olympic Games. It's Nick McCarville now. Joining the show, Nick, thank you for uh, coming on Tennis Channel Inside In. Hey, Mitch, thanks for having me. And uh, I am, I think I'm well-rested post-US Open, but no promises. <laughs> yeah, we had to give it a couple days before, yeah, you we know, did. after the trophy <laughs> ceremony. A uh, lot, lot to digest and dissect from the US Open. But first off, as a first-time guest, uh, and I'm always curious about this for my personal interests as well, but, you know, kind of your path to the big-time tennis and I know it started as a college student in Seattle up uh, for the Pacific Northwest. I know there were some stops, NBC Sports, with like producing for figure skating, then USA Today. How did your journey lead you to 
becoming one of the prominent voices and getting to chat with some of the best and brightest stars in the game of tennis? Well, I don't know if I would say prominent, but um, I, you know, this, this has become my work uh, and, you know, it's built over the years. You mentioned USA Today. I was there for two years as their tennis reporter across the Grand Slams. I was the Serena beat reporter, I say, in 2015 when she was going after the calendar slam, um, which is a pretty wild ride. You use that for the US Open. That was quite wild that year. Um, you know, I, I just always knew that this was the sport that I wanted to exist in. And I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to exist within it. And I'm actually still figuring that out, to be honest. But, um, you know, I've had that great opportunity of working with NBC, working with USA Today. I've freelanced for The Guardian, for The Times, for a bunch of different outlets. And I slowly in 2017, Mitch, I started moving away from writing. I still do plenty of writing. I'm working on a couple articles right now. But uh, hosting, commentating, reporting, that's become more of my beat, my regular work. Um, so I just spent, you know, two weeks with the U.S. Open team. Um, I was one of their world feed commentators and then hosted a morning digital show with Monica Puig, which was really fun. And then I was also on the American Express radio team as well. So just trying to align all of my passions. And um, I don't think I do any of it perfectly, but it's a passion and I work hard at it. And I, I appreciate being a small part of the sport that we love. Well, I think hustling and, and willing to try different things is uh, a lesson for anybody starting out or still kind of working their way up and working their way through in the industry. But was there, and I guess we can kind of move on after this, but was there one thing that you kind of discovered maybe you, you weren't necessarily set out to do, but you discovered you had a passion for and you found that you were kind of good and, and willing to do along the way? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned I went to college in Seattle and I went to a pretty, Seattle U, I went to a very writing intensive, writing focused newspaper journalism program. You know, our, our professors were all newspaper folks and this was at like the pretty outset of Twitter. You know, I graduated in 08. And so people are kind of like, what are these social media platforms? And, you know, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but um, I, as my career has developed, I've realized that I have a passion for and a knack for being on camera and hosting and being conversational in these types of environments, which oftentimes can be awkward or challenging for folks who don't necessarily know how to do it or haven't done it before. I think with sort of the podcastification of our society and, and TikTok, you could throw in there too more people are comfortable with it. And I think it's changed in the last decade or so. We don't have to go down that, that social media path, but um, yeah, you know, taking my writing roots and applying them into interviews, you know, live shows. I, I'm, I'm always still learning and trying to understand and do differently, do better, but that's been kind of the, the biggest uh, curve in the road for me, I guess. Yeah. Timing is everything. And you, coming into the professional world right when Twitter was kind of blowing up and social media, it's, it's really worked out well uh, for right. you and for other people that are kind of of the same age. For better and for worse. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. true. Uh, and speaking with hosting, as we kind of get into the U.S. Open, what was it like hosting uh, the Ukraine Play for Peace event? I know Igas Fiontech was at the forefront of that, Rafael Nadal. You know, it was a lighter moment. I think tennis players, uh, we like to see these moments of them having fun. And I was struck by just the camaraderie of the event also for a good cause. What was that like hosting that event? Yeah, the Play for Peace event, as you mentioned, took place right before the U.S. Open. And Patrick McEnroe was sort of the main host of it. And then Blair Henley and myself, we co-hosted it with him. Um, you know, first off, I just think it was so cool that the USTA did that. I know that there was some 
you know, differing opinions. And I know Marta Kostyuk definitely aired her grievances about Vika's involvement and then Vika wasn't involved, but all in all, you know, to see players come around a certain cause, I think that's huge. I think we saw it a lot during COVID. We also saw it a lot, um, or we did see it in 2020, I think, right before the pandemic when the Australian bushfires were happening and TA did sort of a similar event, but this one was different. You know, it was a mix of generations and seeing Iga like totally freak out, like she was melting down playing with Rafa and having the Canadians there, having some of the young up and coming Americans. And to be honest, you know, Blair and I were on a couple of these calls to get ready for it and planning. And just like the fan, the fan support was awesome. And I actually was a little bit nervous to be honest that Rafa played first and then, you know, the players didn't stay on court so they could go. And I was nervous that, you know, we had a crowd of, I think, 5,000 plus. I was nervous that people were just going to leave after Rafa, but the energy was awesome. New York comes together. I'm a New Yorker. They like supporting causes like this. There's a huge Ukrainian population here. We had some really cool local iterations like weaving into the, the night and a local Ukrainian kid sang their national anthem. We had Veselka represented, which is a local Ukrainian place in the East Village, and they're raising funds for refugees. So I think in the end, they raised 2 million bucks. And, you know, to see players like Sisa Pass, I think, threw in an extra 10K. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the camaraderie, like you say, to see some of those players out there in, in different ways, especially when we have the men and the women, I think that's what makes our sport special. Certainly fun. Uh, it was a great uh, environment, great atmosphere. You mentioned Blair; she's been on this show a few times, and uh, we gotta we gotta make sure that you know we get the official. I mean, if you were to undercut her for the Bedosa engagement thing, I don't think she would like that too kindly. So maybe <laughs> that's I, yeah. I leave that I leave that kind of reporting to Blair Henley. Yeah, that, only, only Blair. That and the videos, uh, the, that and the imitation videos, I think are yeah, her lane for sure right now. Yeah, uh, for sure. Looking at the U.S. Open, a lot of storylines, and I think we can kind of start with this. I mean, we're all prisoners of the moment at some time, but a lot of people coming out in the heels of this thought this was one of the most drama-filled majors that we've seen in a while from top to bottom, starting with the Serena situation and her unofficial last matches, Alcaraz and Iga winning trophies at the end, and a lot of drama along the way. Do you look at this, in hindsight, a couple of days later as being one of the most dramatic drama-filled majors we've had in quite some time. It's funny. I mean, you know, now we're, what, we're 72 hours removed or, or near to that as you and I record this. Um, yes, I agree with you. But I also came out of last year's U.S. Open being like, wow, that was amazing. And I think that was more based on I had done the 2020 Open as a commentator. We were on site mm -hmm. and it was jarring, you know, to be there and see no fans and it was desolate and... I mean, obviously it was, it was a certain moment in time. So then to have all the fans back last year, it just kind of felt like, wow, mm -hmm. this is, and I don't think they were quite at capacity last year, but this year, I mean, I think the Serena, it felt like the Super Bowl. I've never been to the Super Bowl, but it felt like the yeah. Super Bowl for a week straight. You know, she played four night sessions, including that Thursday with Venus and doubles. And each of those matches were dramatic in their own ways. And I just thought, what a cool way to celebrate Serena. And of course she wants to go out fighting. She wants yeah. to go out winning essentially. But, and I think actually she felt like if she would have started a few months earlier, she would have been a contender, which I don't, the way she played against Kontave and Tomjanovic was, cause I, I was at Wimbledon. I was in Toronto. I was mm -hmm. in Cincinnati and I watched all those matches and the way that she leveled up. Yeah. I know she worked really hard for that, but 
the the drama was sort of nonstop. I mean, Francis Tiafo and the run that he had, Coco Goff. I think yeah. the inner the energy that those players bring, especially to an American audience, to have Michelle Obama, you know, front front and center yeah. at the men's semifinal, Alcaraz Tiafo, that was yeah. uh, incredible. And you know, I also think when you have that drama and then it can play out for the fans, watching Garcia's run, watching Shiantek honestly play pretty average into the quarterfinals <laughs> yeah. and then figure out, yeah. you know, figure it out. Um, I did courtside for radio for the women's final and it was, it was literally packed. I mean, it was, and the energy was good in there and you just look at the stories. I think sometimes we worry about stars or rivalries and I think those are important stars and rivalries, but I also think stories yeah. and that's what I know you're passionate about Blair and I are passionate about too, is having an ons, having an Iga, mm -hmm. and then also having a Casper and having a Carlos Carlitos yeah. having things that people can really get their fangs into and get interested in and, and support. I think that's what makes mm -hmm. sport and that's why we love it. And yeah, no disagreement for me on the dramatic, the, the drama level of the open, but it might be a little bit of like, let's give it a little more breathing room and see yeah. what, what lasts. <laughs> yeah, every major is going to have a, a degree of drama and, and intrigue. The storylines here were pretty deep. There were, there were many of them. And you mentioned New Yorkers being passionate about tennis earlier. They appreciate great tennis too. And that's what also was delivered in the women's game all the way through the center Alcaraz match. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. And then you had, you know, TFO. And, and the other side of it too was the Americans, not just Serena, but TFO Coco that kind of captivated the fan base too. A uh, lot of different ways to take this, but Carlos Alcaraz winning his first major championship and getting to number one at 19 years old. Remarkable stuff. He goes five sets, three, three rounds in a row, fourth quarter final and semis, wins in four over Casper Ruud. A uh, lot to be impressed with, Nick, but I think the biggest thing for me is he spent nearly 24 hours on court. And to be young, I guess, right? Like, he he feels like, I mean, we were all ready for this moment, Nick, but I guess the only thing would be, are you surprised it happened so fast? Like, he was anointed to be the best. He's here yeah. before his 20th birthday. Yeah, well, and that's what, yeah, exactly, as you put it, well put. I, I think that that's what has blown people away, right? The fact that he was able to come through the way that he did those 24, almost 24 hours on court. You know, I, I think it also shows sometimes I worry our, our sport has become too physical, like for the guys, best of five, like, are we, are we finding the best tennis player? Are we finding the best athlete? But I think Djokovic, Nadal, Federer have asked of men's tennis in the last decade plus mm. to be the best athlete and the best tennis player. So for Alcaraz to come in and do what he did, I think it was huge. It is huge to have Juan Carlos Ferrero and that whole team around him. Mm -hmm. That video of, of what was it like 20 dudes around Carlos <laughs> Alcaraz yeah. singing on the stage. Yeah. Campione. Uh, you know, I just, I, I'm, I am surprised to answer you plainly. And I think it's also, this is why we love sport. You know, this is why we love tennis. This is why we ask sort of these athletes to go out and there's no givens, right. Mm -hmm. uh, coming into this event, a lot of people, I think, thought that Medvedev would just find his way, kind of the way that Iga found her way. And he ran into Nick Kyrgios, who we haven't even mentioned. Yeah. I mean, what a story he was during the Open, too. So Alcaraz, I think what I love about him is there is a certain element, and I've watched him, obviously, a lot before this US Open, but there's a certain element of every point is zero. Like, every, he he plays every point as zero, and I think that that's 
really hard to teach. I don't know how how early that or like if that's something that Juan Carlos has really instilled in him, but I spent a lot of time watching their box and oftentimes it was some sort of signal of like take yourself out of the moment, whether it's break point, yeah. match point, you know, set point, whatever it is. And it was all about calming down and kind of, you know, signals of next point and just focus here, which I, th I think is something an intangible that goes along with all of his insane yeah. highlight reel sports yeah. center tennis. He has so many gifts and obviously we can just be here forever talking about it. The movement, the, the shot making, the flair. I mean, it, he has it all, but it was the mental makeup. It was between the ears that also impressed me the most. The fact that he had moments where he was tested, those five setters where he was kind of vulnerable and he found a way to fight through it. He found, found a way to problem solve and overcome really winning when he didn't have his A game in some of the early round matchups impressed me more than anything because we all knew the gifts were here and that he's got the skill to be as good as anybody on tour, but to be able to, to mentally overcome these challenges so early and really accept the role of, you know, when the doll is out kind of the favorite in this tournament, and he wore that hat. Well, uh, the mental composure, I know Juan Carlos Ferrero has a lot to do with that, but he's just brought up the right way and seems to be focused on just being better every single day, every single point, as you said. Yeah, no, again, I think that's really, you're pointing out, you know, very, specific things that went well or that he's doing well to earn that championship and i think i think Sviantec, you could make the same sort of argument is that she wasn't playing her best tennis no, I, I mean yeah some of, some of that tennis was yeah. downright ugly mm -hmm. you know the way that she was able to win against eula niemeyer uh, coming coming back in that match beating sabalenka sabalenka was playing really mm -hmm. well but you know look at the great champions of our sport serena is the perfect example and I actually thought I watched a lot of Coco Goff in Toronto and she's starting to really figure out how to manage matches and when she's not playing her best mm -hmm. tennis to win. Yeah. And, you know, I actually thought that that was, yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the center match kind of stands on its own. Obviously it, it, you can't, you can't sort of compare it to Tiafo or to the Casper Ruud final, but right. um, I just, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's crazy to watch someone to to do it and watch him do it in real time and the fact that we've kind of watched this year and mm -hmm. he let's be honest Mitch he had a little of a dip after that French Open quarterfinal loss mm -hmm. you know he loses to Zverev first top 10 loss I think or first top 10 loss at a major whatever the stat was first time Zverev had beaten someone in the top 10 at a major and you know then the grass was tough for him obviously because he hadn't played on it a lot and then had like not a, a terrific summer. It felt like kind of the angel yeah. wings had been clipped. So to come through the way that he did, you know, the Chilich challenge, Sinner and Tiafo, those back to back to backs. Um, and then to physically figure out, you know, there are a couple of days where he didn't come to site. So I think that's yeah. obviously good team management. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm still, as you like see me verbally <laughs> struggle to wrap my mind around that Carlos Alcaraz is world number one and a grand slam champion both but he earned it didn't he juan carlos ferrero also said today i don't know if you saw this he's probably playing at about 60 percent of his potential which i maybe but if he is that's that's frightening i don't if this is 60 percent of anything like what are, my question to the rest of the tour would be what are we even doing here yeah i i i did see that actually i thought that was kind of a funny quote of like like really yeah. but i mean listen he knows yeah. this game as intimately as possible and also like I'm is just that putting that kind of statement out there yeah. is pointed, 
So it felt like a little bit of a like, <laughs> yeah, we just won the U.S. Open, like come at us, that well, sort of thing. He's back playing with the Spanish Davis Cup team now. So to be young, I guess, is, is one way to look yeah. at it. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. More with Nick McCarville here on Tennis Channel Insight. And I want to give a proper shout out to Casper Rude, who lost in the final of the tournament, had a chance at number one, uh, and, and played Alcarez very well. Four sets, heavy match, did a great job to get to the final. And the point I want to make on Casper is there was this misconception with his game, with his style of play, but also with him being, quote unquote, and I use this not in a pejorative way, but the clay court specialist tag was put on him. The improvements he's made in the last year have been remarkable, and I just think it speaks to just having a proper work ethic. And as you said, as we said with Alcaraz, the mindset kind of got him here. He has a very positive approach to the game, and I think it carried him to number two in the world, which is you know nothing to hold your hat at. And it gives him, like he said in the post-game ceremony, that added motivation to still chase something. Well, and I'm curious of how many how many. Uh tennis players current pros are calling up the rafael nadal academy right now yeah. uh, you know like because it for in a lot of different ways uh, that's not the only reason for casper Ruud's success but he really is the only i know there's a few juniors there and maybe there's a few other players that have based themselves there as well but you know moritoglu has built this academy where everyone wants to go and train there well what about getting some of the impact of what rafa has been able to do and build and i think that that's the Root yeah. family did that, you know, they've been there for years. And so I, I called Casper's match for the world feed um, against Tim Van Reithoven. I think that was the second or third, third round. And, you know, uh, I think Tim won the first set or the first set was really tight. And it was, there was no panic, you know, it was like Casper trusting, trusting that he's going to be able to find that level and to, to just kind of turn the key. I think maybe he was left feeling two-dimensional or three-dimensional against a player who is four, five, six-dimensional in, in Alcaraz in the final, but absolutely not a clay court specialist. Um, and and now you you kind of wonder, can he back it up? You know, how does he sort of figure out a way to um, make himself into yeah. into the, the number two? He's earned that ranking. But I think it, it'll be an interesting um, few weeks and months. And I, I also wonder for Rude, you know, it's, it's so understated. Like oftentimes I don't feel like we get like kind of the full story of his feelings or, or what's going on behind the scenes. But I think there's a, some, some players kind of hide the fire pretty well. I, I think he hides the fire. Yeah. And I think that there is a ultimate determination within that family for him to, to really be a Grand Slam champion in the future. Some players hide the fire pretty well. Some just, you know, let it rain expletives on their own player box every single point, which, is, I mean, there's, and we can kind of transition into the curious talk with that because there's something to be said about Casper Rude's approach to the game and taking it one match, one point at a time. I yeah. think Nick's great, and I think it's awesome that he's putting it in gear, but it is going to be a challenge for him to go seven straight with the depth of the men's game. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing in that Hatchinoff match coming off of just masterclass tennis against Medvedev was the fact that he was a little banged up. His A game wasn't there. 
those are the moments that I think champions are really made is like we mm-hmm. said with Al Chris finding a way after you get broke and ha- you're, you're on track to win the TFO match in four you lose the tie break now you got to win in five Kyrgios's game there's so much to like about it I just wonder if seven matches in a row is a realistic expectation given where he's at and kind of his approach to everything if that makes sense yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. I think it is realistic. You know, I think obviously he only played the six at Wimbledon, but and then here, what into the quarterfinals? So that's mm-hmm. five, and that win, that masterclass, as you said, against Medvedev. And I think that there's always more to Kyrgios under the surface than than we believe there to be, or, or we give him credit for. But I think that that's also what he's built. You know, yeah. he's built sort of this protective casing. So that we can, you know, you can focus in on the expletives or the going at the box or whatever it is, when actually, in truth, there is this greater depth to him as a person and as a player. And it's up to him if he wants to fully, as you're saying, challenge himself in that way and then tap into it, which yeah. is not, it's, it's, it's so easy. And, <laughs> and I, I did a... Um, I did the US Open podcast to kind of wrap it up. And I think oftentimes, you know, we have these back and forths of seven matches in a row and, and, you know, the physicality and the focus and all that kind of stuff, which is, that's the discussion, right? Mm-hmm. But imagine actually having to do it, you know, yeah. um, the, the, the heat and the humidity and the pressure and the yeah. press mm-hmm. and the body and all of these different things, which yeah. makes the Alcaraz run mm-hmm. even more impressive throw Sviantec in there, throw all of the champions in there. And so, you know, that is, it's up to Nick to control that. And if he wants to, if he wants to make that happen, I think he's 100% capable Mm -hmm. of winning seven intense pressure filled matches in a row. It's just, if, is he going to be able to ask that of himself and then does he execute? And also you've got to have a little luck go your way. Casper Ruud, or excuse me, Carlos Acres saved the match point against yeah. Yannick Sinner. Mm-hmm. He could have hit a let cord. You know, I mean, there's just right, right, right. anything yeah. can happen. Right. Yeah. He, uh, I, in a way, I kind of like that he was throwing rackets at the end, that he cares, that he was that upset, that he felt like he squandered a, a chance, which I, I do appreciate. There is something to be said about every match going out there. You beat Mavity, you beat world number one. It doesn't mean anything in the next match. You have to take the court at 0-0. Zero, zero. It doesn't give you any equity. So, again, it's hard to win majors. It's not just a curious problem. There's a reason why so many people can't do it, even world-class tennis players. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the women's game, I do want to get your thoughts on Tiafo's run. Uh, yeah. Not to be understated what, it, what this breakthrough meant. I mentioned last week I'm so happy that it not only happened, but it happened here in New York yeah. at this major. You, yeah. get, you understand why the crowd likes him so much, his brand of tennis, his enthusiasm for the game. But also, I mean, for lack of a better term, his guts in these big moments. He's not somebody that is afraid to go for his shots in the pressure situation. And that's that's an underrated fact in what makes a lot of these tennis champions. So going to the semis, losing in five to the eventual champion in Alcaraz world number one, just hats off to what Francis did at Flushing Meadows. No, it was, it was huge. I totally agree. And, you know, to do it, to beat Rafa. And, you know, I, I was, there's obviously so many things to be impressed by in the tournament. Two matches impressed me the most. Tiafo beating Rublev after beating Nadal mm-hmm. and the way that he did. Mm-hmm. And then Kamyanovich beating Samsonova in the match after she beat Serena. Up, yeah. And Samsonova was on a 13 match winning streak yeah. and Isla saved eight set points in that first set. So yeah. Those were the two standout performances to me. And the crazy thing, Mitch, that I don't feel like people have really talked about that much, 
is Francis didn't really play that great against Alcaraz in the semifinal. I mean, he definitely had bursts of it. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, there were some amazing points. But what was the serve percentage in the end? Like 40% first serves in. Like imagine if he actually had a really good serving night. Like what would we be? He was just always under pressure on the serve. But to go 35,000 feet, you know, Michelle Obama, the tweet from LeBron James, um, was it Bradley Beal, the Wizards player, you know, all of all of those. And also there was I did sideline for the men's semi as well that night. And there was just like, it kind of felt like the week prior. It wasn't, it wasn't the same as Serena, but there was this buzz about, yeah. and Kurt Streeter did a really great article in, in the New York Times and spoke a lot to Brian Shelton Ben's dad and the U, the Florida coach, former pro, about how there's still not great black male representation in college tennis or in men's tennis. So can Francis be this sort of beacon of new energy and I thought the way that he had, the fact that he had that run the way that he did, I just thought that was amazing. Um, and yeah, I, I, I hope it's not a blip. And right. I think that Wayne Ferreira's doing the, the right work with him. Um, but I, I, I hope the sky's the limit for Francis. He's a standout human being. The process, I completely agree with um, what Wayne Ferreira is doing, and I hope it's not a blip. It's it's fair to speculate, unfortunately, because we've seen this before yeah. where it, one run is great, but it doesn't guarantee you, just like we were talking with Kyrgios, any more success. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I completely agree. The wins after beating an all-time great, that is that shows mental strength because it's so natural. It's a human natural feeling to just have that, that adrenaline dump of, I just, you know, to put it in perspective, like I just beat Nadal, I just beat Serena. That next match to go out and win, it's why so many players lose that following match is because it's hard to mentally get yourself to that place again. So just hats off to Francis. Against against Rublev, no less. Like, come on, Andre Rublev is Mm -hmm. a bona fide top 10 player. He is. That th- this U.S. Open was special in a lot of ways, and uh, Francis Tiafo deserves to be a part of it. Uh, yeah. I, I did want to get your thoughts, kind of switching, kind of the, the women's game, and I want to circle back to what you said because it's another thing that I, I agree with completely. Igas Fiontek winning this major without playing her best tennis, putting it into proper perspective. Now, I mean, that's very Novak Djokovic like to just kind of get to the final win it without even hitting your apex. But first U.S. Open title, third major, twenty one years old. Talking about stacking up a resume and stacking up accolades, this is a Hall of Fame resume already, and dare I say, she hasn't even begun to hit her peak yet. Yeah, 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 I agree, and I, I think you know a lot of a lot of when I was doing the sideline reporting for, I did a few of those matches for the radio. A, a lot of my job is to watch, like intently watch the boxes because you want to see what what the cadence is and. Really, what Thomas Witkowski has done done with her, and obviously it was already it was already there with Peter Shershpatowski previously. But Thomas has come in, and I think you know being able to you know not trusting the flight of the balls and not feeling you know she didn't have a great Toronto or Cincinnati, so right. to come in, it she, I think she was helped by the Serena situation because she was a little bit under the radar mm-hmm. in that sense. And then also we had the Coco storyline, the Anjabur, Caroline Garcia, let's not forget that run either, where Ego was kind of like the third, fourth, or fifth thought in the sense of the women's draw. Um, I actually ran into Ega uh, on Monday. Uh, I went to coffee with a friend and randomly she was at the same coffee shop. And I think she had just done the Today Show, but she, she has built herself into this champion, you know, and as you say, you know, champions adjust and 
she made those adjustments and she was not playing spectacular tennis, you know, struggled against Lauren Davis, struggled against Niemeyer, came back from a breakdown twice against Sabalenka. Uh, The thing that, the thing that I impressed me the most is that she did near to that apex in the final, like Anz, Anz was playing a little bit, uh, Anz wasn't there, especially in the first set. But the way that Iga, I mean, she was almost up six two four love. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think she was a point or two away a couple times. So there was that, and then she obviously fought some demons to cross that finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and it seems like you know everything's there to kind of continue to try to manage it, but yeah. nothing's a given. And I, I, I just thought it was an absolute standout performance for sure. The Sabalenka match, if you talk about adjustments, she's down 4-2 and she wins 16 or 16 of the last 20 points essentially to win the match. Her ability to adjust, her ability to kind of think out there, and I think she's so locked in mentally and, and with her with her focus on the game in each match. And I, I don't I mean, obviously no one's gonna get probably gonna get to the heights at Serena or we're not gonna have this like true just win every slam type situation, but you watch Iga play and you understand why she's always a factor in all these tournaments. And we've talked about the depth of the of the women's game, Nick, and how there's been a lot of parity. We got number one versus number two in the final of this tournament. So, again, credit to Anja Bohr, who's a pioneer in many ways. But she got back to her second straight major final and ran into the best player in the world. So there's no shame in, in what Anz did. It's just a tough matchup for anybody to play Iga. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I totally agree. And actually, the, the Sviantec comeback against uh, Sabalenka in the semis was very Serena-esque. You know, down, what did she win? 16 of the final 20 points. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that you're down 4-2, that you're not playing your best tennis. And Sabalenka was playing well. And also, Sabalenka is just continuing to hit up against that wall. So how does she yeah. How does she figure it out? That's you know, I, straight, again, Yeah, that's three straight major semis. She's made three major semis. She's lost 6-4 right. in all three third sets. So... She's so close, and I still maintain that her apex is as good as anyone's in the game. It's just, can she mm-hmm. find a way to get through? Maybe it is mental. I don't, you know, she's right well, there talent-wise. Uh, it, it feels to me a little bit like, okay, how do we, how do, if, if you're only going to play one way, mm-hmm. if you're only going to play Sabalenka ball, yeah. then you have to be able to have a little bit of a gear up or gear down, or you're going to have to be crisp mentally to be able to figure out how to win matches like that. And if I can just a quick word on Jabir, I think getting to another major final, doing it at the U.S. Open, I don't think it was a, a final any of us mm-hmm. anticipated her to, you know, I think mm-hmm. she'd been to the third round previously. Um, and she came out like so high against Rabakina in the Wimbledon final. And I feel like she almost came out like too relaxed in this one. Like it was kind of like, okay, I'm, everything's going to be fine. And Ego was like, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go for your throat. <laughs> So, you know, can, can she make that adjustment? But, you know, the energy within that stadium, 23,000 people, the Turkish flag, or uh, excuse me, the Tunisian flags and the Polish flags, the red all over the stadium. Um, it, it was a really, really cool moment for our sport. And I think continuing to show when you've got yeah. these national stars, both Ans and Igar, our home, home nation uh national names mm-hmm. uh, it's only gonna help grow the sport obviously but women's tennis in particular yeah they're the best i mean they're clearly the best to ever come from their country i think that's not even you know not even debatable at this point and the fact that ons was able to follow up a major performance with this one uh, improbable the win over garcia i don't think many of us saw coming given garcia's level and what she had been doing 
Uh, it was remarkable stuff. So again, congrats to both. Obviously, Iga getting the title, uh, and then just an also a word on uh, Coco Golf, who you know fell in the quarters, but keeps getting a little closer. Like we're getting the incremental steps. Obviously, the final step, winning the major, is the hardest one, but there's still progress every year. Still a teenager, um, and now it seems like we're getting to that. It's only a matter of time situation, but. I was impressed. I know it didn't end the way she wanted, but I was, again, impressed with her ability to kind of handle the moment and handle the, the, the role that she's been given in this tennis world. Yeah, and I think she just ran into a red-hot player who was still, you know, on a streak. And obviously, Garcia came back to earth in the next round. Mm -hmm. But I think Coco, especially like that Zhang Shui match, and there are a couple others as well, um, Maddie Keys, where she just, you know, she figured out a way to win. And I mentioned I, I watched a fair amount of her this summer. I watched the Rabakina match as well as the Sabalenka match in Toronto on the grandstand, which is, it can be quite windy on that court. And she managed both of those matches like impeccably well. And I think that's where a lot of the doubles comes into play. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think we, the media, like we, we rush, we often rush stories like Coco, you know, like, wow, it would be amazing if, and she already made the French Open final. But I think that you're right. The come up is is still happening, and like slow your horses, everyone. Like yeah. she's she's making her way, and you know bringing in uh, Juan Tadero, and you know to be able to have that um, that sort of extra that that move surprised me a little bit, and I think having that obviously uh, Corey Senior having that sort of input it has been big for them. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com couple more things with Nick McCarville before we wrap this up. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking about the U.S. Open. Um, I just want to ask you when you think we'll see Rafa again. Do you think this was mm -hmm. it for him at the end of the year? You know, obviously he got the, uh, the child coming up, which is awesome news for him and his family, but was banged up, loses the TFO in a throwing fourth-round match. When do you think we see Rafa again? I mean, great question. I, I have no idea. I he's he's meant to go to Labor Cup. I'm leaving for Labor Cup on Saturday, so see you there, Rafa. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. I I I think it's quite possible he plays there. I think it's possible he, you know, plays a couple more tournaments and then plays the the season ending finals. Um, you know, is he going to play Davis Cup? Obviously, a lot. There's a lot of involvement there with Spain, and and I know that he was a big part of that when they when they brought it to Madrid a few years ago. Um, the, the body's banged up. Right. And so, you know, obviously the win, you take nothing away from Francis, but was Rafa at hundred percent? Probably, probably not, but I, I just don't know how much longer they can continue to push the body and not have it impact a slam. You know, he got through Australia. He barely got through Paris. Like, let's not forget that. And then what took him out actually at Wimbledon was an injury. So <laughs> You know, I, it's hard for you. It's hard to imagine how much tennis he, you know, can keep playing with the body. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be able to win matches always, right? Match like two, mm -hmm. three, four matches, but to ask, I mean, he wants to win more slams. Yeah. And so he wants to win the biggest titles in the sport. So 
uh, that was a non-answer answer to your question. No, it's fair because no one really knows, but you know he's not going to just mail it in. Like if he's healthy, he no. loves the game too much. Uh, I still maintain it goes with repeating. Nobody gets the injuries he gets. Like he gets the most non-tennis injuries, like even the one where he kind of hit his face with the racket. I'd never seen that before, like a rib injury. I was wondering, like, how do you crack a rib playing tennis? But it's like only Rafa with his intensity, apparently. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did want to mention too, before we, you know, paying all our respects to the people at the U S open, the, uh, the women's doubles team of, of Krejcikova and Siniakova getting the career slam and they beat the Americans McNally and Townsend who put up an admirable, admirable fight, Taylor Townsend off a of motherhood, making a major final remarkable, but this Czech doubles team is, uh, is quickly rising up the ranks. I mean, they're not to be messed with. Yeah, I mean, they have that all-time career slam, which is huge. And that was actually, you know, Katie and Taylor, I, I didn't call that match. I followed it pretty closely. They had that match by the throat, mm -hmm. and they just couldn't close it out. But for Katie to make, come on, Katie McNally makes back-to-back -back U.S. Open doubles finals with different partners. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, Taylor Townsend on my mat, or on my court for a few matches in Cincinnati. And to see her come back, and she was wearing that, the, like, cat suit sort mm -hmm. of onesie, she is obviously proud of where she's where she's been and where she's come. Yeah. And I think that if she can continue to, you know, be confident and build off of that, that's huge. Also, you know, the win for Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury yeah. successfully defending uh, their title. I thought that was amazing. And how about Dita DeGroote going back to back in the wheelchair singles, yeah. being able to win two calendar slams in a row. Amazing. That is insane. And on the wheelchair note, to have junior wheelchairs at a slam for the first time, I called the girls junior final in wheelchair. And, you know, if you talk about development of a sport and how well-rounded is tennis and what are pipelines being more inclusive and having the junior wheelchairs, no other slam has done that. So I thought that was huge for the USTA to do too. It was great. It was just a tremendous event all the way around. Uh, props to everybody that had a role in putting on one of the best U.S. Opens we've seen. Uh, Nick, the last thing I have for you, you mentioned it. You're going on Saturday for the Labor Cup. Uh, we'll see if, we'll see if uh, you know, the world team can kind of break through, but uh, it's been tough recently. But how excited are you for this event? And what, should we, what do you think we should realistically expect here on the court? I mean, I think we should realistically expect a, a Team Europe win. I, I don't. I mean, let's be let's be honest. I I would love to see, and we have seen some really competitive Labor Cups, but um, it's definitely stacked against Team World. And but that's that's kind of the beauty of it. And we know these guys at their top level can challenge any of sort of the star-studded Team Europe. Um, I am going to be fascinated to see what London's like the week of the Queen's funeral. I arrive on mm. Sunday and the, the funeral's on Monday. I don't think that'll impact Labor Cup at all. I don't think they're expecting, you know, play starts on Thursday or Friday. Yeah. Um, and are we, Mitch, going to see, are we going to see Rafa, as you said, and are we going to see Roger? You know, I, I think that Basil was, has been the target. I don't know if that target has moved. Uh, you know, we haven't seen Raj what is it since Wimbledon last year? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I know that there's been a lot of struggle with the body, like more than maybe they anticipated, but there really is no event like Labor Cup. I, I think some people are still kind of getting used to it or, and I think that a team world upset or like some sort of, you know, surprising result would help help the event. But, um, you know, I hear it's sellout crowds and, um, I do love Labor Cup just does it a little bit differently. And I think that's, that's what we need in tennis is for people to continue to try to do things differently for 
to, to grab new fans. Everything does not need to be the same. Yeah. Individual athletes like tennis players, they still yearn to be part of a team. So I think this event really gives them that opportunity to kind of experience what they missed out that some of the other sports had that camaraderie of, of cheering together. And, and, and I, you know, the first edition of it was amazing and you started to see the players buy in. That's how this has really taken off. The fans love it because the players care. So I'm excited. I won't say I'm rooting for a world victory, but it would be nice if we had some more parody. In, in the I results. mean, we are, t- we are two Americans. <laughs> yeah. What are we? The team world is 0 and 4. So yeah. Um, yeah. Last so. year was a bad one too. So we'll see. Uh, Nick McCarvel, pleasure having you on. We'll have to do this again. Uh, thanks for joining tennis channel inside and best of luck in, uh, in all your side hustles, but also the main ones too. Uh, we'll be following you in the tennis calendar on our television screens for sure. But thanks for coming on tennis channel inside in. Thanks. Thanks, Mitch. I appreciate it. Huge thanks to Nick McCarville for appearing on Tennis Channel Inside in this week. He's quickly establishing himself as one of the best on-court interviewers in tennis. It was a real pleasure to talk tennis with him. And uh, we'll see what good intel he gets at the Labor Cup. Can't wait for that one. The U.S. Open is in the rear view, but the tennis calendar does not stop. Stay up to speed with all your favorite tennis podcasts on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast. The entire Inside In catalog is there, along with the other podcasts on our network. Inside In is also on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you may listen to your podcasts, we are there. I'll be back next week to talk some more tennis, get ready for the Laver Cup, talk about some of this Davis Cup action going on with more guests from inside the tennis world. For Nick McCarvel, I'm Mitch Michaels, and this was Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.